Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Hi, I am Rabbi Heidi Cohen here at Temple Beth Shalom. It is such a pleasure to have you all here. I want to welcome you and uh, say thank you. Thank you so much for coming out on a Sunday afternoon and to take time for yourself. You are giving yourself one of the most precious gifts of all, and that is time for Talmud Torah, time to study Torah. In our lives, our lives are so busy and so crazy, and we're going a thousand different directions that we don't always take that time. Um, you know, we were just talking, we're, we're all addicted to these, right? These are our cell phones. It's amazing technology. We have a computer that we can put in our back pocket. Um, I want to encourage you at this time to take that computer out and turn it off. All right, so that way um, you can disconnect, so you can connect with what we're gonna to do today with the study of Torah. Uh, in fact, I just got back from hiking with 14 of our 10th graders, our confirmation students in Joshua Tree, and I made them do just that. And I had to force it on them, because you can tell a 10th grader to turn off their cell phone and they laugh. But when you take them in a Joshua Tree and there's no cell service, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, um, just really before I, I say anything else, I just want to let you know, if you need to use the restroom, if you are looking for a water fountain, outside the doors to your left, right around the corner, those are our restrooms there. There's also a water fountain there, so please, um, I will also be around. If you need something, I'll be sitting there in the back keeping my eye on you. So if you need anything, just you know, look at me and I will make sure to take care of any of your needs that you have. And for all of us here at Temple Beth Shalom, again, we welcome you. We are thankful that you are here. We are thankful. Ari, thank you so much for bringing CSP here to, uh, to Temple Beth Shalom, to Central and Northern Orange County. Yeah, I, I think they like it. <laughs> and so with that, um, I want to invite the father-to-be again. Um, he is on baby watch. We know if uh, he goes running out for any particular reason. There you go. So, Bisha'atova, an easy time, and thank you again for having us and for, for being here. I'm the only one allowed to have my phone on. Just so you know. Um, First of all, thank you, uh, Rabbi Heidi and Temple Beth Shalom for hosting us. We've had some great programs here this year and uh, looking forward to some more CSP North-based programs. Many of you um, live in this area or maybe even further up north. I think we have Temple Beth Tikva people here as well. And um, if you come out, we'll continue to do programs for you. So we'll bring the good programs. You come out and we'll all uh, learn together. Uh, if, for those of you who don't know about CSP, it stands for Community Scholar Program. This is our... Anybody know what year? 17th year of doing programs. As I tell people, if this is your first program, you've missed 547 other uh, programs. <laughs> Not to worry, we do record a bunch of them. This is Grendel over here, our sound engineer, and we put them on iTunes. You can go to, OC you can go to iTunes and type in OCCSP podcast, and you'll find quite a few programs that you can catch up on. Um, I guess we were here. Who was here in November with uh, Mark Glickman when he gave his program and you came back? Terrific. We have Mark's dad, Ron, I see, hiding somewhere. In, where's Ron? Ron, thank you for, again for Mark. Everyone, thank you, Ron, for Mark. Yes. 
Um, I don't know if Ahuva Ho is here, but I do want to thank Ahuva because for years Ahuva has been telling me we've got to bring Tsioni Zevit, we've got to bring Tsioni Zevit. So thank you, Ahuva. Maybe you'll sneak in and we can thank you again. I want to thank all of those of you who are donors to CSP. Um, we do get a grant each year from a Jewish Federation of Family Services, and we've received grants from the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, but most of our money comes from you, and you donate to us, and we bring the scholars and the teachers and the programs to Orange County. So thank you to our patrons and our members, and uh, if you're not a patron member, please join us and um, help us to continue bringing the greatest speakers in the world to Orange County. We also have a CSB Legacy Program, and if you're not part of our 60-person 60-unit, family-unit uh, legacy circle, please consider joining us and uh, getting benefits, including, uh, remember I've told everybody that studies show if you join a legacy circle, this is true, Professor Zevit, you live longer. <laughs> so in general, you can look it up, and um, in specific, of course, you help us out in the future to continue bringing great programs to our community. Um, a few other quick things I wanted to make sure you know. We have handouts for programs coming up the next few weeks on March 4th. Uh, Lawrence Barron is coming in. We're doing a special pre-Oscars program entitled Statuettes of Limitations, the Oscars and the Holocaust. Uh, that will be at 11 a.m. on Sunday at the Federation campus. And then March 9th, we have a return visit by Judy Klitzner, uh, who is really one of the best teachers I've ever heard in uh, 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 teaching uh, stories from the Bible. The topic is the tent, the field, and the battlefield, upheavals in the roles and fortunes of biblical women. So I hope you'll join us for those two. At the end of March, or middle of March, we're co-sponsoring a program at a weekend at Temple Bethel of South Orange County uh, Festival of Jewish Spirituality with Estelle Frankel. And then in April, we are very happy to have Rachel Korazim come back. Those of you who were in Israel with us or have studied with Rachel Korazim know how good she is. We'll have her for two programs on April 13th, which is a Friday, I believe, Anochi Dialogue with God and Israeli Poetry. And then uh, on Sunday, Israel, Diaspora Relations Changing Narratives. So, uh, yeah, I think we've got some stuff going on, and uh, I hope you will join us. Probably see a new baby at that, well, I would hope you would see a new baby at that point. Uh, CSP Hat Challenge, people, we're in our second year. We have winners, people who've taken their CSP hat. Grendel is, is putting his on. Grendel will show people. We have a few left for new members. People have worn them all around the world, including Islamabad, Pakistan, Easter Island, Haida Gwaii, British Columbia, uh, and we've given out awards. We recognize people for those. Um, terrific. You have to wear it. You get, send me a picture. We put you up on our Instagram, and people stare at you and ask you, what does CSP stand for? If you're in a hostile place to Jews, you say California State Police. <laughs> okay. Who do we have with us today? We have Professor Tsioni Zevit, Distinguished Professor of Biblical Literature and, and Northwest Semitic Languages, who joined the faculty of AJU in 1974. He earned his PhD at uh, Berkeley, but also spent time studying at UCLA and Hebrew University, University of Michigan, University of Vienna. Prior to joining, a prior to joining AJU's faculty, uh, Professor Zevit taught at the University of Haifa, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and UC Berkeley. Since joining the faculty, he has held visiting professorships at University of Pennsylvania, UCLA, USC, UCSD, and Hebrew University. He has participated in archaeological excavations at Tel Lachish and Tel Dan and regularly visits ongoing excavations in Israel at least once a year to keep up. He has been awarded fellowships by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Lady Davis Fellowship Trust, and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation. Is, is there anything left to get? That's it? No? He's also well known for being Sharon Berman's professor at AJU. 
right, Mark, many years ago? And I think many of you, some of you have had him as your professor or know people that have had him as, your, as their, profet- their professor. Um, he has, uh, in, in 2017, his fourth edited volume, Subtle Citation, Illusion, and Trans- Translation of the Bible, was published, bringing his total of publications to 140. Is that, is that too low now? Is, that, is it higher than that? What number is it? 160. He's trying to compete with CSP as we're being scholars. He comes out with a new thing. Please join me in welcoming Professor Sioni Zevet to Orange County, CSP North. Uh, the, the topic is such that I feel I should come out like Joel Austin, hold this up in the air, but I'll not use his normal statement, but I'll say something like B-I-B-L-E, the Bible is the book for me, okay? <laughs> now, I, I see a number of you have brought your Bibles, and that's really great because as odd as it's going to seem, when we say that we and Christians, Catholics, and Protestants share the same Bible, you will actually see that we do not share the same Bible. So another thing that when I ask Jews to come to synagogue and bring a Bible, most people only bring a Torah. Now, how many of you have a Bible with you that has more than five books? Okay, all right, that's, that's a good sign. That's really a good sign. Now, there are a number of questions that we're going to ask today that were on the handout or on the uh, publicity for the, for the program. What do we mean by Bible? What is the Bible and what isn't the Bible? What are the differences between Jewish, Catholic, Protestant Bibles? Because obviously, besides the obvious fact that Jewish Bibles do not contain the New Testament, uh, what is it when we? What do we mean when we say there's a canon of Scripture? That's only with with one end, canon of Scripture. And how did the Jewish canon or list of books develop? And when did it come into existence? And who are the ones who made it come into existence? Another question I want to ask in the time that we have is, what is the theological significance of the way we list our books? It's something that we don't think about. And then finally, how did the Bible come to be? First of all, I guess this is a good time to hand out the handouts. Um, you're You're going to be receiving uh, a handout that has a lot of the key terms that we're using. Uh, and it's my hope that by the end of our session today, or by the end of the question and answer period today, all of you will be familiar with many of the terms. I may skip one topic or two topics that are listed there, but that's fine. As it comes around, you're going to see that there are, it's a list of key terms, and smack dab in the middle of that list of key terms, there's a chart that's a chronological chart that will be important for us uh, in, later on uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in my presentation today. 
those of you who are thinking of uh, perhaps using, uh, using this uh, later on, or the information here later on, I left the, actually I left the margin, or I tried to leave a, big, a bigger margin so you can jot notes for yourself if you want to remember certain things. Okay, does anyone not have a handout? Good. Okay, first of all, Bible. Okay, Bible, the word that we use for Bible that's used in almost all European languages and in a number of non-European languages comes from the Greek word, and a Greek word, tabiblia, and all it means is the book. That's all it means, the book. The book par excellence. So when you say the book, that's what you're talking about. In English, we use other expressions like the good book. Okay? Uh, and that the good book will mean something very different. Let's say if you're a member of a book club and you're discussing whether it was a good book or a bad book. So that, that was the good book and that was a lousy book. But over here in common context, the Bible is understood to be a good book. But like many good books, it's a book that is really not read. And it is certainly a book that is not read by Jews. I asked my grandfather, who could very often, when I was studying, uh, he was, what are you reading? And then, he, and then he would start just citing. And I'd say, how, how, do, how do you know this by heart? So he said, well, when we went to yeshiva, or his pronunciation was yeshiva, it was, we, no, one, no one read. After you studied Torah, you stopped, you stopped. That was the end of your studies in Bible. You heard parts of the prophets on Shabbat in the Haftarot, or on the Chagim on the Haftarot. The, so I said, so how do you know passages from all over the place? He said, my teacher, when we were studying Gemara, when we were studying Talmud, insisted that we look up every allusion that the rabbis make in their discussions to other biblical books, because the rabbis studied the Bible. So every time if a rabbi would say, oh, Isaiah said this, and the rabbi would assume that you knew it by heart in the Talmudic discussion, our teacher insisted that we look it up. So he says, when you looked it up enough times, after a while it begins to sink in. And that's why he did it. But other than that, Jews tend to respect the Bible, but no one really studies the Bible. The study of the Bible, the modern Jewish study of the Bible, is part of the Jewish Enlightenment that really begins only in the 19th century among Ashkenazim, Jews from, nor from, from, from Northern Europe. Sephardic Jews, people from Spain and North Africa, actually study the Bible. For them, it was very important. And for many of the Jewish commentators on the Bible, well up into the 1600s, were Sephardic Jews writing in Hebrew. Why was it important for them? Because they came from a culture where their next door neighbors were Muslims. And Muslims knew Quran. And if my neighbor knows his holy text from beginning to end, I have to know my holy text from beginning to end. Why? Because he has 
Arabic translations of my holy book. So he can come to me and ask me questions about my book. I have to know my book. And so that cultural setting went off. In Europe, on the other hand, in Northern Europe, on the other hand, something else was at play. The church more or less didn't encourage laity to know the Bible. If you had to know what the Bible says, you spoke to a priest. And therefore, the Bible wasn't particularly part of the public discussion. That only began to change with Martin Luther and with the Protestant Reformation. So that's about the good book. Now, another question that comes up is, well, what is in the book? Now, how many of your Bibles actually have a table of contents? Okay. Then it's worthwhile opening it up, opening up to your table of contents. I'm going to guess a lot of us have a Jewish Publication Society uh, translation with us. But that list of books is called a canon. Canon is simply a word for a list, but it's an official list. And we think that the word, even though it comes through Greek and Latin, is actually a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word meaning a, a, a rod or a staff, Hebrew kaneh. It's a rod or a staff. It's a measuring staff. And it's a measuring staff that measures all those things that are good and proper and appropriate. So when we speak of the canon of scripture, we have a list of books that were deemed by certain authorities to be the proper and fitting books that Jews should read or that Catholics should read, or that Protestants should read. Now, if you have a canon, it means, and someone says, well, here's the canon of books, and don't let me catch you reading anything that's not on the canon, okay? Uh, if you have a canon, somebody made that list. And we're going to add, towards the end of the session, we're going to deal with that question, who made the list, how do we get our canon, and why is our canon different from the Protestant canon, and why is that different from the Catholic canon of books. But whenever we hear canon, we're looking at something that's official, that's been authorized by somebody, and that usually is, doesn't change. In other words, the order of the books on the canon doesn't change. The, what's number one, number two, number three, number four, the order tends to be fixed. Because when we look at the list, we tend to think the top of the list is the most important thing. Those of you who go shopping with shopping lists usually follow your shopping list. You've made the list of what's most important. You usually make your list according to the particular supermarket that you're going to go shopping. So you know the milk, milk products are over here or are you start at the vegetables, and that's the way you're gonna make your list. So the, the canon itself is something like that. The books that are most preferred for reading are gonna be up above, and the le least important books are gonna come farther down on the list. One of the questions that we have to ask, but we're not going to be able to answer it today, is 
in the time of the Bible itself, that is to say, in the time when Jews were living in the land of Israel, or when Jews were in the Babylonian exile, living in places close to Baghdad, um, what was their Bible? Because if books about them are in the Bible, what were, was their Bible? And what did it mean to have a Bible? And what did you do with the Bible? We take our books and we put them on a shelf. What did they do? Did they read them? And what did their books look like? Now let me give you a, a, an interesting uh, example. I'm speaking about the canonical Bible. A number of years ago, I was at a conference in um, Leiden in, in, in the Netherlands, and the, the topic of the conference was canonization and decanonization. That is to say, how books get on these lists and how books get knocked off these lists. Uh, in the course of the uh, in the course of the conference, um, there was a great announcement that there was a new translation of the New Testament that had been made into Dutch, and there was we were all applauding. The, the announcements were in English, and it's fine. It's a, a translation of a, of, of a Bible or a part of the Bible is a major academic accomplishment, and sometimes these projects can take 10, 15 years. So we're all applauding, and then somebody points out, we're near the area I'm sitting, but the conversation now is in Dutch, and I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm elbowing my friend, what are they saying, what are they saying? Because the tones are becoming hot and angry. The New Testament was missing the Apocalypse of John, which is the last book in the New Testament canon. And then suddenly, this, I didn't realize how serious this was. It's a strange accident to happen. You forget to translate part of the Bible. But it wasn't. This was done on purpose. And it clearly was a mark of some split in the Dutch Reformed Church. And at that point, the conversation stopped being in English and Dutch, went into Dutch, went into dialects of Dutch, and people were going like this, and they were doing other things with their hands. And it was loud, it was loud, and, and I didn't quite get what's going on. And then someone explained to me, the Gospel of John, or the Apocalypse, which is a book that many of you may have picked up and looked at. Uh, it's the story of the beast, and from there we get numbers like 666, and, and, uh, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting book, but it's a very weird book, okay? It was a book that was not completely accepted by all branches of Christianity until around the year 1000. So around the year 1000, it begins to appear, it, it appears on every canon, but it isn't always recommended that people read it. We have it on the list, but it's not something you should read. It's not something you should study. It's not something a preacher should preach about or take his text for a, ser for a sermon from that book. So it's a strange place in the canon. It's, it's hovering. It's on the list, but find something else to read. But other people, for example, in the United States, if you'll listen, I happen to be a, f 
I happen to be a fan of late night religious shows on the weekend because I, I and I have my favorite I have my favorite preachers and then I'm always I always find it strange to discover in Orthodox congregations a number of people who are also fans of the same ministers, um, but some churches love the book because it can be interpreted figuratively and adjusted to every political circumstances and everything that's going on in the world. The world's going to end, the world's not going to end, Israel's going to be attacked, Israel won't be attacked, uh, the Messiah's coming or not coming. But what happened in Amsterdam at that time when they published the Bible without John in it, they were saying this book has been decanonized. Now take a look at your own Hebrew, at your own Bibles, and ask what's. And I'm asking you, what's the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Do I hear Chronicles? Okay. Has anybody here read Chronicles? <laughs> One. Why? <laughs> okay. You compare it, because you're comparing the stories. Okay. Chronicles is essentially a retelling of everything from Genesis through the end of the Book of Kings. Okay? And it's a book that was written in the Persian period, and it's a retelling, and it contains some versions of story. It, it contains versions of stories that contradict earlier versions of the stories, of similar stories. It contains additional information, but it spends a lot of time talking about how the temple should be organized. But the fact that two people admitted to having read Chronicles is fantastic. Uh, when I gave a session a number of years ago on the book of Chronicles, there was only one person in the room who had ever read it, and that was because he'd taken a graduate class in Chronicles, and he had to read it, read it in seminary. So it's not a book that is read. So there's an interesting, we were ha there was an interesting discussion. We were sitting uh, along, when I was a graduate student, we were sitting in Jerusalem, and there were a group of us who uh, would meet uh, once a month to study a, a, a midrash on, on the book of Leviticus. It's, but suddenly, one, uh, we were talking about Chronicles, and we said, who needs Chronicles? Because nobody really reads it. Any, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's there, but it's not read. So someone said, how could you say it's not read? And he opens up a book of rabbinic midrash, and lo and behold, there's somebody who makes the statement, the book of Chronicles is the most important book in the Bible because there are more midrashim on the book of Chronicles than on any other book in the Bible. I said, and a number of other people in the room said, no way. Okay? The statement is not true. It's simply not true. And no, we couldn't find, we, it's not that we couldn't find mention of Chronicles in collection of Midrashim, but there's no large body of Midrash and Chronicles at all. So the question is, why did some ancient rabbi make the statement that there are more Midrashim on the book of Chronicles, more homiletic stories on the book of Chronicles than on any other book in the Bible? I suspect it was because he was teaching and there was some student 
in his, in his Beit HaMidrash, in his schoolroom, who was like me, said, what are we studying the Book of Chronicles for? It's a really unimportant book. Why do we need it in our canon? And so he made the statement, ignorant person as you are, okay, there are more Midrashim on the Book of Chronicles than anything else. The kid wouldn't have had the chutzpah to say, prove it. Okay? And so the statement is preserved, but the fact is wrong. In other words, what I'm suggesting is the reason we have Chronicles is because it's there, and we try to justify its presence, but we have no idea why it's there. Were it eliminated from the Bible, I don't think people would be arguing and fighting about it. But in our case, the canon got closed after Chronicles, and that's what we have. And I could, I, I could raise the question about the book of Leviticus, because Ra Leviticus usually comes just before the summer, uh, summer period, and that's a time when you very rarely will find rabbis sermonizing on anything from Leviticus. They have a few verses that are really good for sermons, but who's going to talk to you about which parts of the body of an animal's body are supposed to be put up on the altar? And what are you supposed to do with the blood of an animal? Is that going to be the subject of a sermon that we're going to find, find relevant? But we will still continue to read it because it's part of the Torah, and no one is going to gut the Torah to decanonize part of, part of the Torah. Uh, and there are other books that we'll see in, in, a, in a little while. Now, when I ask the question, what is the Bible? It's easier to start with the negative. What the Bible is not. What isn't the Bible? What shouldn't we think that the Bible is? First things, it is not children's literature. It's really not children's literature. It's not something you necessarily want to read to kids before they go to sleep, okay? It's a book by adults for adults, coming from a culture in which children were just something that hung around until they became young adults. It's, so it's not something, so now we have, we have Bible stories for children, but all of this has gone through the Disney process and it's been watered down and prepared and with nice illustrations and that's fine. It is also not pious literature. It's not literature that's supposed to inspire you to feel good and holy and go out and do good deeds. That's not its objective. That isn't the objective. Uh, most biblical characters, if there's any lengthy story about them, are not paragons of virtue. They're, they're, they're not. I mean, Ruth, okay, who, who, whose name, uh, it's really odd. Her, we don't use the term ruthful much in English, but we do use the term ruthless. Lacking the qualities of Ruth, of, of chesed, of loving kindness, of, of... Even she is not a paragon of virtue. Because if you think about her, she has to be guided by other people. She can't make decisions for herself. Uh, and she's also a rather needy person and a clingy person. Um, so, but can you learn from somebody who acts that way? Yes, you can. But she is not the embodiment of any particular virtue other than obedience and kindness. Um, it is not about, it's not a book of inspirational literature. It is not a book of theology. That is to say, it's not a book that comes to teach about God, about how God's way in the world. But it does contain material that can be used for theology. Uh, 
That is to say, when I say theology, knowledge about God. If you read the stories, God is a character in many of these stories, and therefore what God says and what God does counts. And by studying all of the things that are, dis are narrated about God or the things that God is quoted as saying, then you can construct a theology. You can, you can do a profile of God in the same way that you can do a profile of Joseph or a profile of Abraham, where you have enough material, you can actually sit down and work through the things and figure out, was this the type of a person that you would want to invite into your living room? I remember many years ago, I asked, I was teaching high school, uh, Jewish high school, and I asked the kids, how many of you would love to have the prophet Amos come, come to your Shabbat table? And all the hands shut up because we were reading the prophet Amos. So then I said, well, now let's take a look at this chapter. And then let's take a look at this chapter. And I sent them to those chapters and verses where Amos is talking about businessmen who cheat and who lie and the like and what's going to happen to them. And suddenly I said, okay, now that we've looked at these verses, how many of you think you want to introduce Amos to your father? <laughs> Man, there were very few people who wanted him in their house. But it didn't mean that what he, didn't, what he had to say was not relevant. But there, there can be a stormy person who you don't want in your home, but you still would like to listen to him. Another thing is that the Bible was not written by God. Uh, you'll find this very often stated more by Christians than by Jews, that the Bible was written by God, but the Bible was not written by God, and there's nothing in Judaism that maintains that position. What you do have a question about is whether or not the Torah was written by God. But that can be offset by saying no. The Torah was dictated by God to Moses, and he wrote it down. But if you really want to insist, you can say the story, there's one place in the Torah where God actually writes something. He writes the first version of the Ten Commandments. There's a narrative about the first version of the Ten Commandments, and those are the Ten Commandments that Moses broke when he was coming down from Mount Sinai and he saw the children of Israel were dancing and celebrating around the golden calf. Beyond that, there is no tradition of God having written the Ten Commandments, if you want, uh, having written the Bible alphabet. There's something else, oh, so what, so then what do we have in the Bible? The Bible, contains a lot of stories, it contains literature, it contains poetry, it contains maxims of the wise people suggesting how we live our life. It is didactic literature. We are supposed to learn from what people did. We are supposed to learn from the mistakes that they made. Okay, But the Bible doesn't say, look at the mistakes that they made. We're supposed to figure it out. We're supposed to read it, talk about it, like you talk about a regular novel. Figure things out. Is there something worthwhile knowing? Is there a lesson here on how to live our life? It was written by a lot of different people, different time, different circumstances. We'll get to that a little later. It was not written in the Hebrew alphabet that you know from the Torah scrolls in the Ark. What we call the Hebrew alphabet, what we call the Hebrew alphabet is an Aramaic alphabet that was developed by pagans in Syria. And then it was picked up by the Persians, by the Persian Empire, to write 
and because no one, no one spoke ancient, ancient Iranian. They were up, they were the plateau. So when the Persian Empire conquered all of the Middle East, they decided they were going to use Aramaic as their language. And so Jews decided, hey, look at this is a neat alphabet that these guys have. So we're going to take all of our texts that are written in a different alphabet and we're going to change them over to this Aramaic alphabet. So we have an Aramaic alphabet that we call now Hebrew. The rabbis called it Chaldean because Chaldeans were a tribe of Arameans that lived in, in uh, Iraq, actually. And so that, that was the, rabbi, uh, the, the way the rabbis used to refer to it. So our Hebrew alphabet is an Aramaic alphabet, and the old Hebrew alphabet, it's gone. It's gone. People like me read it, but it's gone. So when we think of the Bible, we have to realize that it was originally written in one alphabet, and then it was changed. But even though it was written in the Aramaic alphabet, the he, it was used not for Aramaic, it was used for Hebrew. There are, incidentally, two or three people in Israel and one in Australia who are arguing that Hebrew should be, we should give up the Aramaic alphabet and we should start writing Hebrew in Latin letters. Okay. Uh, it's a movement that hasn't gained too much popularity, uh, but it's it's an idea that has and they, they advance some good they make some good reasons among others uh, that it would be easier to read. Okay. The earliest piece of literature in the Bible is most likely Exodus 15, the Song at the Sea. Okay. And the latest or youngest piece of literature in the Bible is most likely the book of Daniel that was written around the time of the Maccabees in the second century, okay, BC. All of the texts in the Bible, and this is gonna be a strange term, I'm gonna speak about performed texts. When we encounter the Bible, Usually it's we bring the Torah out and the Torah is read publicly. That is a performed text, okay? Nobody read any ancient book silently. We sit down and we read. He's reading, okay? We are all trained. You have to go back third grade, fourth grade where your teacher said stop moving your lips, okay? Stop moving your lips. The Bible is recorded speech. Silent reading is occasionally noted. Uh, St. Augustine apparently makes a reference to one of his teachers who, who actually could read without moving his lips. Um, but Noah Webster, a, a servant of Noah Webster, describes going in and at saying he was reading. He, she could see he was reading because he was turning pages, but there was no sound coming out of his mouth, and this was a strange thing worthy of note. Okay. The Bible was always intended to be read aloud. So what we lose, there's a certain quality of the, of the Hebrew that we lose when we have it in translation because anybody writing a text intended to be read aloud worries about how it's going to sound. The games that you can play with repeating certain consonants and certain rhymes, that disappears in English, in, in, in English translation. Now, 
I'm going to ask you to please turn to the back of the handout because I want to talk about these different books of the Tanakh or the different canons. The Jewish, can the Jewish Tanakh on the left-hand side is the oldest listing of books. Well, that's the oldest canon that we have. And then when you go to the Protestant canon, you can see that certain books are not in the same place. So for example, well, let's first go and stick to the Jewish canon. We have the Torah, then we have the prophets, and then down the third part is called the writing, the Ketuvim. Okay? Torah contains the five books, the prophets part contains eight books, and the writing contains 11 books, five, eight, and 11. Um, the logic behind this division is it's roughly, roughly, roughly chronological. Okay? So the Torah takes place way back when, and then the prophets, the, the prophets start with books of Joshua when the, the Israelites cross into the land, judges after Joshua dies, then the story of Samuel and kings. We get from Samuel, we get a King David, and then we get into the book of Kings. And then at the end of the book of Kings, Israel is in exile. Uh, when you get to the prophet, the, then you have a second part of the major prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're arranged in chronological order. First came Isaiah, then came Jeremiah, then came Ezekiel. Uh, then you have minor book. We, have, we call it minor prophets. It's actually one book of 12 parts. It contains these 12 little prophet, prophetic books. And they too are arranged roughly in chronological order. Now, in the prophetic books, in the, in, in the books after Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, etc., these are people who lived and spoke under the historical circumstances that are described in the book of Samuel and Kings. So here we have the history, and here we have people who were commenting on events and on society during that period of time. Okay? It would be take, it's like if I took all of the LA Times and I took all of the front pages over here and the op-ed pages over here <coughs> and bound them in separate orders, then I'd have to look for the op-ed that matches certain events in the corner. So there's a logic to it. In the writing section, we have Psalms, uh, Proverbs, and Job. Um, we'll see that there's a different order. We see that the book of Ruth is, these are five little scrolls, okay? Five different books. They're arranged in our list of books according to the order that they are read in the synagogue on Jewish holidays. And we begin the festival year with Passover, okay? With Passover. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the religious year, but not, okay? And, the, and we count the calendar from then, but the, but the but the uh, festival year starts with Passover. And then we have three books at the end, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, one book, and, and Chronicles. But take a look what the Protestant canon has. Ruth has jumped out of the festival canon, okay, and it's moved up after the book of Judges. Why? Because it, the first line of the book of Ruth is, it was in the days when the judges judged. So it makes sense. They put Ruth into the historical books in the chronological sequence. Um, 
they put Job, for, if you take a look, you have Proverbs and Job. They, the, the Protestant and Catholic has a, has a section called Poetical Books. See, they're putting the books in, in sections according to the literary genre. History, poetry, prophecy. So they have a different way of <coughs> dividing it up. So the Song of Sol Solomon, okay, Shir Hashirim, which is read on Passover, which, which is read on Passover, for them it's just another poetical book because Passover isn't part of their, is, it doesn't make sense in, in that particular context. Um, the book of Daniel, for example, in the, near the very bottom of the Jewish canon, is put after Ezekiel. Why? Because according to the stories in the book of Daniel, Daniel was among those that went into the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel was also one of those who went into the Babylonian exile. And Daniel is considered a prophet by Christians, not among Jews. Not among Sephardic Jews, not among Ashkenazic Jews. Sephardic Jews considered him a prophet because they used all sorts of weird things in Daniel to try to figure out when the Messiah was going to come. But in the church, they didn't need Daniel because they had the book of Revelations, which is a much stranger book and actually builds on some of the images that you have in Daniel itself. But you see the difference between the Jewish Tanakh and the, and the, Protestant, Old Testament, uh, the Protestant Old Testament simply is based on a certain type of a logic that goes here. We have historical books, and then we have, and we have poetical books, and we have prophetical books. Now... If you'll take a look at the Protestant books and the Roman Catholic, you'll see that they are more or less similar, except that the Roman Catholic list includes many more books. There are books that we, how many of you, is there anybody in the room named Judith? Yehudit. Okay, your name goes back to this book, Judith, over here. I'm going to guess you've never read it. Okay. Okay, so there's this Jewish heroine named Judith, Yehudit. She has a book, and that book is preserved in the Roman Catholic Bible. Uh, there's a Jewish name, there's a male name, Tuvia, Tobias, Toby. Okay, those go back to this book of Tobith, Tobit, who's a, who's a, a pious person. Uh, then we have, of course, Esther. But they have Esther, but they have more of Esther. They have more Esther stories uh, than, they, than, than, than we do. So what, what's happening over here? Martin Luther didn't start listing his canon on the basis of the Jewish books. Martin Luther was not rebelling against the Jews. Martin Luther was reforming the Catholic Church. So... What Luther did is he looked at the Catholic at the, the way the Catholics list the book, listed the books, he looked at the way the Jews listed the books, and he wanted to make his Bible look more like the Jewish Bible. Why? Martin Luther knew Hebrew. He could read the Hebrew Bible. When Martin, when the Reformation began, and wherever it began, almost all of the leaders, the intellectual leaders, knew Hebrew. Who were their teachers? Local rabbis. 
rabbis, there was nothing wrong with teaching, teaching this to, 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 to Gentiles. And these people wanted to know. And as they began to know and understand what the Hebrew was saying, they no longer agreed necessarily with what the church was saying that these books meant. And that's the beginning of the Reformation. So Luther was positive <coughs> that if his Bible would look more like the Jewish Bible, the Jews would come to him. So what did he do? He made his book look more like the Jewish Bible. He eliminated all these extra books that you see under the Roman Catholic column that are in, in uh, italics. And he gathered them into another collection called the Apocrypha. So we say a book is Apocrypha. It means that these books are their authority, their significance for religious faith and practice is less than the other books. In other, they're of secondary significance. Now, he, basically he's telling the church, the Catholic church, a lot of the books in your collection really don't belong there. And that, that needless to say, made a lot of people angry. Okay, now I'm not going to go into it, but you'll see that the Eastern Orthodox Church of the Old Testament has many more books even than the Roman Catholic. And then there's the Ethiopic Church, which has, uh, uh, there's not a book that they turned away, something like, 80, <laughs> something like 84, 84 books that are part, of their, are part of their collection. So it means even within the world of Christendom, there were different churches made different canonical lists and, and studied them. What is interesting about the Roman Catholic list and the Jewish list is that the Roman Catholic list is based on a Jewish list. Our Tanakh, the Jewish study Bible Tanakh, represents a series of decisions were made, that were made in Eretz Israel, in Palestine. Okay, Palestine, thinking of the whole of the Galilee and Transjordan and Cisjordan, where Jews were living. That community had its own learned people, and they said, this is what we should be reading. Okay, it's like one school board decides, this is the book kids should read in the fourth grade, and this is in the fifth, and the sixth, etc. But the Jews who were living in Alexandria, Egypt, they were exposed to Greek philosophy. They were Hellenism to literature and the like. And they decided to order their books in a different manner. They had different teachers. And they're the ones that translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek because they were also trying to teach an audience of people that were no longer Hebrew speakers. So they made their canon look like the canon of any self-respecting pagan temple. Not in terms of the contents, but in terms of how the material was organized. When the church begins to develop in the first century of the common era, it is a church that's based primarily on Greek-speaking people. Okay, Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking non-Jews who are joining the church. And therefore, that arrangement is the one that was best suited for their needs. 
when we reach somewhere in the fifth century, or maybe later now, people are arguing, the called the parting of the ways, when Christians no longer thought of Jews as possible fellow travelers, or when Jews no stop thinking of Christians as mainly Jews with strange practices and ideas, then, and the ways parted, then the lines became hard and fast. And what was then the Alexandrian Jewish list became the Christian list, became the Catholic list, and then the Jewish Tanakh remained the Palestinian list, remained the Palestinian list. So the Protestant canon, we know exactly who created it. It was created by Martin Luther. So that's a, that's a 16th century phenomenon that has to do with the beginning of modernity and everything else. Now, beyond that, there's something fascinating about these canonical lists. Those of you who have Hebrew Bibles or translations, turn to the last page of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book in the first part of the Jewish canon. Okay, what is that last paragraph, verse 10, talking about? Someone want to read it? Aloud? Perform it? Okay. The last verse in the book of Deuteronomy. All right. Loudly. Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord singled out face to face for, ver for the various signs and portents that the Lord sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country, and for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel. Okay. That's part of a eulogistic statement about the death of? And where did Moses die? He dies in the wilderness. He never makes it into the Holy Land. The whole Genesis, once you skip through all the beginnings of Adam and Eve and all that stuff, the book of Genesis talks about God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, you are going to have a lot of children, and this is the land I'm going to give you, and your children are going to inherit the land. And where does the Torah end? It ends with Israel in the wilderness. There's a land that's been promised and not delivered. You promised that there were going to be a lot of us. My God, there are a lot of us, but we're on the other side of the border. The third promise has not been fulfilled. In other words, Gen Deuteronomy, the Torah ends with Israel out of the land. Now, turn to the end of the last book of Malachi. That's going to be way down, way down, way down. That's the last book of the prophets. Okay, it's the last book of the prophetic section, beginning of the Ketuvim section. Now, while you're finding that, I want to tell you what's been going on in all these prophetic books. The story of Mount Sinai 
talks about a negotiated contract, not exactly fairly negotiated, but it's a negotiated contract between us and God. Why between us and God? Why am I saying that us over here? Because we are the descendants of the descendants of the descendants and go on as far back as you are. And if someone converted, you are, a, you are part of that deal too. You join into it. And none of us would say, do you know you had five generations back, there, you had a relative who left you 100 pounds of gold, and he said 10 generations down, come and find that person and give it. We would all say, yes, yes, okay? None of us would reject it. But what would happen if someone would say, you know, you had 10 generations back, you had this person who went into debt, and he, you've inherited the debt. Never heard of the guy, right? It's going to be, it's going to be something like that. <coughs> the obligation of God to Israel and Israel to God at Mount Sinai was presented as an everlasting agreement. We, the fancy theological term is covenant, okay? But it's a contract. It's the same type of a contract that you have with a party, the first part and a party, the second part, when you buy a house or rent an apartment or rent a car, okay? You have obligations and you have debts, etc. Now, what happens in this particular covenant is Israel keeps blowing it. Israel doesn't do well. And the major fault of Israel is not in doing the ritual performances. Not th they come to shul. They come to the synagogue. They go to the temple. They don't keep certain moral and ethical obligations, which are held to the same level, as the same level of importance as the rituals. And therefore, the, con the, the prophets keep saying, you are going to go into exile. God is going to revert the situation. You haven't kept up your end of the deal. And all those prophetic books, that's one of the main themes that they're talking about. You'll very often hear that the prophets are actually talking about moral and ethical, issue, ethical, moral and ethical issues all the time. I'm telling you, they're not. They're not. There are about... I actually went through and counted, and then I had students go through and count to be sure. There may be about 20, 25 statements about ethical and moral issues, about being good and being kind. What they're holding Israel accountable for is your, the way you act on moral and ethical issues is you disregard me. You're not ethical because you're disregarding me. And if you're disregarding me with those things that I think are of high importance, moral and ethical behavior between people, you're doing the same thing with regarding the holidays, the festivals, your obligations to the temple. And therefore, folks, God promised that if you don't keep the, co the covenant, you're in trouble. And the trouble means you're going to be punished. You're going to go into exile. And that's how this section ends. Okay? Malachi says, <coughs> the day at hand, if I'm looking at verse 19, that day is at hand burning like an oven. All the arrogant and all the doers of evil shall be straw and burn them to ashes and leave them neither stock nor stock. Uh, stock, blah, 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 bows, but you, you're, 
it's going to be one hell of a bad time for you, is what he's saying. Okay. But look at the way it ends, the last lines. In verse 23, Lo, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the coming of the awesome, fearful day of the Lord. He shall reconcile parents with children and children with their parents, so that when I come, I do not strike the whole land with utter destruction. When this prophet Malachi, who is living after the destruction of Jerusalem, says that, he is talking to people who are saying, you're in exile already, you're in exile, you're out of the land. If you don't get things right, I will destroy the land. There'll be nothing left to come back to. And he holds out a promise, I'm going to send Elijah. I want you to remember this scene because it's going to be very important when we look at the Christian canon. Now there's a great surprise in store for you. I'm telling you, at this end of this section, Israel is out of the land. Turn to the last part of the Hebrew Bible, book of Chronicles that we were thinking of chucking, okay? And I want you to see how that ends because this is a big surprise, okay? Would someone care to read this for us? 30, chapter, you're in chapter 36, chapter, verse 22. Okay, do I have a volunteer? Well, again. Okay. And in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing as follows. Thus said King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any one of you, of all his people, the Lord his God, be with him and let him go up. The book of Chronicles started with Genesis. This is where it ends. Do any of you have family, someone named Cyrus in the family? It was a very popular Jewish name based on this. Based on this. Cyrus is talking to the Jews out of the land. And he is saying, okay, and he is saying, thus says Cyrus, the Lord of the God of heavens. He's not going to refer to the God of Israel, but he's the God, Lord of the God of heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and I am his agent, basically, I am his agent, and you can go back. And, he, in, in, and then in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that come before this, we know that he actually pays and allows the people to go back. Some of that information is in the chronological chart on the other side of this handout. Now, if that's the case, take a look. Israel is out of the land at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Israel is out of the land in the, in, in, at the end of the Torah, at the end of the prophet, prophet part, and at the end of the writings part. What does that mean? It means that there is always hope, and what do we do? We can start over again. 
there's something optimistic about hearing one peep, good positive note when you're out of the land. But the Bible begins and ends, begins, excuse me, it, each section of the Bible ends with Israel out of the land. So we can argue that's the way the Jewish people in the land of Israel organized their canon, because that was the message. Now let's take a look at the Catholic canon. canon. But I'm only interested, actually, in drawing your attention to the fact that the prophets, or in the, pro okay, or in the, in the, in the Protestant canon, it's the same thing. The prophets are at the end. The prophets come at the end. That is to say, the Torah, the Pentateuch, ends with Israel out of the land. The prophets end with Israel out of the land. The way the Jewish canon has it, we then go into the singing and the pro we, it ends with the Jews out of the land. But in the Protestant canon, when the Jew, when the when the Jewish canon ends at the book of Malachi, I have to turn back to the beginning and start reading. But in the beginning, God created. In the Christian canon, uh, go back to, uh, I want you to remember the Malachi. I will send, I will bring Elijah and reconcile fathers with sons. When a Christian then turns the page in the canon, this is what he reads. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, in chapter 3, John the Baptist is introduced. If you compare the figure of John the Baptist, the way he's dressed in a hairy mantle, and he lives in the wilderness, John the Baptist is just like Elijah the prophet. In other words, the beginning over here, okay, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, is in many ways a continuation of the story, except in the Christian understanding, the, the continuation of the story is through Jesus. So the ordering of these books is really a theological statement of where is hope to be found. Jews find hope if we read the canon is a way in the way of starting over again. The Christian understanding of the canon is that this experiment failed and, a, and God comes back. Why is it, what does New Testament mean? It's a new covenant. It's a covenant made on different conditions with different people, okay? And so, that understanding is a theolog theologizing of the canon itself. But I said before that the Catholic, that the Roman Catholic canon is in, in many ways a, um, is a Jewish canon. That's the way the Jews in Alexandria did it. So this fact that I've theologized the Jewish canon and the Protestant and Catholic canon Maybe that it's, it's sort of neat and it sounds right, but it may not be historically true. In other words, there are people who believe the presentation that I get, 
that I gave you is true and that it's very important. We're lacking one important piece of information. We don't have a record of when Jews sat down and said, okay, we're going to put Genesis over here and Exodus here. We're going to put Joshua here. We're going to put Psalms here. We don't have any record. So what to do? So a hypothesis was developed to explain the origins of the Jewish canon. And with this, I'm going to close. It's called the Yavne Hypothesis. It goes like this. Around the year 90, after the Second Temple had been destroyed by the Romans, and the Jewish community in Palestine impoverished, Christianity was slowly beginning to make important inroads into the Palestinian scene and even outside. Primarily, the first converts are almost all, all Jews. But in addition to Christianity, there were many messianic movements. It was a time of trouble. All sorts of people came, out of the, uh, came up from out of the woodwork, and they had ideas. And there was one person who led an army of 4,000 unarmed people to attack the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. Needless to say, the Romans were unimpressed by the power of God, and these people were killed. So according to the hypothesis, a number of rabbis got together at Yavne, okay? Uh, and they decided to vote which books are going to be included and will be official for us and which books won't be official for us. Um, and they voted. Um, and they created the list of books that we now have. And this was an idea that I remember having been taught once when I was in high school and then later on in university. Uh, and then I discovered, and suddenly there was an, an article that had been published in 1964, suddenly became very popular. It was written by a man named Jack Lewis, uh, not a Jewish scholar, but a very wise man, very nice man. And he simply pointed out to a simple, a simple fact in rabbinic literature. There is no record of any such discussions ever having taken place said people were <coughs> looking at a few passages and misinterpreting them. What, was, what were the passages and how were they misinterpreted? The passages were the following. Why are we reading Song of Songs? Why are we reading the book of Ecclesiastes? Why should we read the Song of Songs? Good question. God isn't mentioned, and there is a discussion of many body parts that are best left covered, okay? So it's a, it's a love book. It's a book of passion, nature poetry. What does it have to do with, 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 with the relationship, with the covenant? So the rabbis turned it into a series of metaphors about the Jews and the Exodus, okay? The love relationship between the Jews and God and the church turns it into a metaphor for the love relationship between the Christians and the, the church and Christ or church and God. It's a metaphor. Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes is a skeptic. Okay? 
Agnostics Anonymous. Okay? Why are we reading that book? And on what holidays? It's read on Shavuot. Okay? When we're talking about the giving of the Torah. So why are we reading that book? And you think that's bad? Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, the end of the book, talks about the third temple that's going to be built now that the Babylonians destroyed the second temple. And he starts talking, he's making up laws, he's quoting as if he's quoting the Torah, but he's making up new laws. How can you reconcile everything Ezekiel's saying with what's found in the Torah? He's contradicting the Torah. We shouldn't be reading that, but we do read it occasionally. Those were the questions that the rabbis were asking. They weren't asking what books should be in and what books should be out. They weren't talking about canon and canonization. They were, saying, they were asking, what the heck are we reading? Books that are in our canon, that our ancestors started reading and associating with certain holidays. Why are we reading these books? They're unfit. They're improper. We should decanonize them. And Rabbi Akiva comes up with the explanation for so why we read Song of Songs. He says this, he makes the following statement. If you think that the day that the Torah was given was a holy day, when Song of Songs was written by Solomon, that was a holy day. And if the Torah is holy, the Song of the Songs is the holy of holies. Who's going to argue with Rabbi Akiva? Okay. I forget the answer, the, the response for Ecclesiastes. But I do remember, I do remember the, the response regarding these eight chapters, these 40, four, chapters 40 to 48 in Ezekiel. The rabbis could not come up with an appropriate response. So they sent somebody, one person who was apparently a very clever thinker, and they gave him a certain measure of oil, and they sent him up to somebody's attic, and he was not to come down until he had resolved all of the contradictions between the prophet and the book of Leviticus. And he came down, and he expounded the differences to them, and they were satisfied. And that's why we have those last eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel today. Unfortunately, the list of his reconciliations was never preserved which is sort of good because it's an area of research that I like. <laughs> so what we actually have, uh, as Jack Lewis pointed out, was no record of voting what's in or what's not in, but rather of trying to understand why certain books are already included, which means that long before the rabbis even came on the scene historically, these books were already part of the canon. There was most likely a simple explanation for this. Not everybody owned books or owned scrolls. This was, a, this was a property of the elite, the elite in the religious establishment, the elite in the government establishment, and they were most likely centered around the temple. These people decided who, what, what scrolls, what books they were going to invest in. What were they going to pay a scribe to copy? And they kept them in shelves. So their bookshelf determined what books went on. If somebody would not pay to have a scribe copy, 
lack of interest, the book disappears. So somewhere in Jerusalem, there were groups of people, most likely associated with the temple. They were most likely priests, and I think they were most likely Sadducees, not Pharisees, who sometimes in the 5th century, around the time of the Babylonian exile of 586, they said, this is our bookshelf. These are the books that we preserve. These are the books that we carry with us into exile. And if there's some new prophets, there may have been a hundred new prophets, but we only hear about three of them. And they have little, little bitty books, so most likely not everything that they said. So that our canon, the Jewish canon, is a process hidden in time, hidden under the sands of time, largely anonymous, but by people who cared, who believed that the covenant was going to go on, who believed that in times of difficulty, even though Israel was out of the land or Israel was dispersed throughout the land and in other lands, that the beginning would come again, that God would renew the covenant, renew the covenant with Israel and that the people of Israel and the initial promises would continue to be in effect. So that, I think, are some of the answers to essential questions of how the Bible came to be. Thank you. Okay, we have time for a few quick questions. I know I ran over. Okay, I spoke about two canonizations, one in Alexandria, one in Palestine. So the one in Palestine, most likely, as I'm, I'm saying now at the very end, we're looking around the time, 500, well, slightly before the time of the, of the destruction of the first temple. The uh, big Jewish community that begins to develop in Alexandria is ultimately, ultimately consists of people that are running away from the Babylonians and they're making their way to Egypt around the same time. So it's Palestinians who, with books that are running into Egypt. And they're welcomed into Egypt and they become a very important part of the population there in Hellenistic Egypt. So, but they have their own leadership. So their leadership arranges books differently. But what does it mean to arrange a book, uh, uh, they're, they're, the list differently, it's just, it's, it, it's insignificant because it doesn't affect the authority of the books. Initially, you mentioned that um, the Bible is not the word of God, uh, the Hebrew Bible, that it's literature, it's poetry, it's uh, life's lessons that we can glean from it. But isn't it also, and it seemed that you were insinuating this as you went on, isn't it also history? Isn't it an historical document? The question, okay, the question is, is I, I mentioned that the Bible is poetry uh, and poetry and different types of literature and genres, but isn't it also history? Absolutely it's history. It's absolutely history. Nobody, it, it, everybody is aware that what's happened, everyone is aware of the pastness of the past. Jews are always aware of the pastness of the past, okay? The past didn't just happen yesterday, okay? People didn't speak the way we speak yesterday, okay? Uh, we're sort of a little bit short-sighted, uh, short, 
As Americans, we have short historical memories. That's a problem in the United States. Uh, studies done in the University of Florida were able to show Americans only begin to develop a sense of historical past when they are about 21. And why? Because body changes, economic changes, social state, state changes, and they have younger brothers who say, boy, you're so old, you don't know what's going on, you're not in it, like that. Europeans have, European children have the same sense when they're about 13, 12, 13 years old. Why? Because in Europe, if you're walking around your city, oh, that's 500 years old, that's 700 years old, you look at the old paintings and the like. Okay. So in Israel, people have a sense of the pastness of the past. How, do we, how can we see that? In the Bible itself, when the Bible, when one late prophet quotes an earlier prophet and then tells you what he thinks the prophet meant, you can go back and read the prophet yourself and see, no, he didn't say that at all. You're just, you're just flipping what he's saying. So the, the, the historical background is always there. And because Jews who are reading it now, or even Jews who are reading it, Israelites who are reading it even before the destruction of the temple, knew God keeps his word. How do I know that God keeps his word? Because look at all these disasters that have happened to us. He said that would happen if we behave in a certain way. So now we try to change. It's only because I have this awareness of the past that I can have faith in the future. Okay, let's take two more and that'll be it. Sir. Early on you mentioned the Ashkenazi Jews did not start studying the Bible until the 19th century. Can you explain why? Oh, did not, yes. Uh, Ashkenazic, the religion in Ashkenaz tended to focus only on the Torah. So when a student, when you went to school, you studied the Torah from about five to 10, and then after that, Talmud. There was no, you were, so you're studying law. You were not studying, and Midrash, but you were not studying Bible anymore. Um, and in, Ash, and, and in, in the Sephardic countries, you continued to study Hebrew. Okay, you, you, you had a great tradition in Sephardic countries, in, in Spain, for example, in North Africa, of people composing Hebrew poetry. You didn't have that happening in Ashkenaz. Uh, so it was simply a matter of how it was, time was allocated. One of the big contributions of Zionism was its insistence that we, if we're going to renew Hebrew, it's about time we start reading our own ancient texts. So that's the first time that Jews start looking at the books after Dvarim, okay? In a, in a, in a way, they start asking questions about the history, who wrote them when. It's also the same time, this is happening roughly at the same time that the critical biblical study is beginning to develop in Germany. And Zionists are aware of what's going on there and they are interested in joining that type of a parade of intellectual uh, ambition. Okay? Uh, wait, there was, ma'am? Wow, you're gonna to have to invite me back. <laughs> the question was uh, about my interest in archeology. span I am very much interested in trying to understand how Israelite culture plays itself out. Archeology span gives us the material background. 
It gives us the stage. Here, in, in the Bible, what I have is the script of the play. I know what people were doing, saying, thinking, talking. I want to say, when they're talking about a house, what does a house look like? And when they're talking about garments, what does the garment look like? And if they're talking and condemning, what is the temple? Well, what does the temple look like? So that's what my interest in archaeology is. It keeps me away from theology, which I do not like, and it keeps me grounded in the text, which I do like. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you all uh, for coming. And just two quick notes. One is uh, CSP has gone on the road the last few years. Many of you join us in Israel. You're still probably recovering, Kanovskis. But uh, we are heading to New York in October. We have now two spots left. We have close to 40 people in our group. So if you want an adventure of a lifetime in New York City, I don't care whether you grew up in New York, you go to visit New York every year, you, you, you've never been to New York, I will tell you this trip is unique. And this is the third in our trilogy of trips. Each trip has been completely different. So this last trip that we're going to do will be completely different from our first two. And if you're interested in going, talk to me. We are going to Lithuania and Poland in July. Many of you have read all the good news coming out of Poland these days with the right-wing government. <laughs> that is actually part of the beauty of our trip because uh, we have spent 1,000 years as a Jewish community in Poland. At one point, 75% of the world's Jewish community was in Poland and Lithuania. Uh, many of you have ancestors or parents or grandparents that come from Lithuania or Poland. And the question we're going to explore is not just what happened during the Holocaust, that will be a piece, piece of it, the puzzle, but what happened for those thousand years before, what happened during the Holocaust, and what the heck is going on now. I was on the phone um, in a Skype session with the head of the JCC in, in uh, either Warsaw or Krakow, one of the two, on Thursday, and he said, that is why you should all come to Poland, because it is a very interesting time between what's going on with the government, what's going on with the people, and the reawakening of uh, the Jewish community in Poland. So I hope you will join us. We'll be launching, um, opening up reservations this week. Generally, we have space for 33 people, and uh, you'll see the itinerary. With that, thank you, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday.